0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week, I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Mike Morrow from News Corp. Mike has been working in media for over a decade. After starting his career at Caratha, he's worked in various roles at Today FM and Triple M before moving into television as a producer with Channel 7 and then on to his current role as a content producer and picture editor with News Corp. He chats about why he left his hometown of Perth, how he ended up in the Austerio newsroom and the changing landscape of media in 2016. Mike is one of those universally likable people in media, so I really hope you enjoy our chat. <laughs> Welcome to the Media Mates podcast. Thank you, Ralph. Thank
1: you for having me. That's quite all right. Now, you've just come off a shift at News Corp. Mm -hmm. What do you do there? Um, I'm a content producer there, digital content producer, um, which basically means. I work for the News Corp Network, so we're like a wire service for News Corp. So we pump out stories um, and then the mastheads around the country and the newspapers can take the content as they please. So that's like the Daily Telegraph, Herald Sun, Courier mm-hmm. Mail and so forth. Yep, yep, exactly. What does it mean when you're a
0: picture editor? So I imagine that's what, sourcing the pictures um, yourself and then cropping them or
1: how does my, it work? My job as the network um Picture editor slash content producer means that um, I, it's kind of like a legal side of photos. So if someone wants to use a, like a picture from Twitter or a picture from Instagram and they're not too sure if they can use it, they'll go through me first to make sure that it's legally right to use. Um, also, if we need to buy pictures, um, I'll also organize that side of things as well, deal with the agencies, deal with the um, bidding for the photos. Um, and all that that kind of stuff.
0: Given the thirst for content these days for websites and having images attached to that it's obviously something that has come on in the last few years mm-hmm. so it's something that obviously keeps you very busy.
1: Yeah I mean the whole digital landscape of news is is still relatively new. Um, pictures do play a big a big part in it as well so um. Yeah. It, it does. It does keep me busy. We've got quite a big picture department, so we do have dedicated staff that just work on pictures. Um. Whereas my role is is more of a content producer's role, but I do pictures on the side as well. Um. For the team that I work in.
0: Now let's go back to where it all started mm-hmm. for you. Were you somebody that always had a
1: fascination? in media or was it something I always, that sort of came to you
0: by accident?
1: No, I always had a fascination with news from a very young age but never really saw myself working in news. Um, I ideally wanted to work in television Um, when I first left high school, my first job was in television behind the scenes on a couple of kids' TV shows back in Perth. Oh, what shows were they? Um, it was a Southern Star show called Wipeout. Um, it was in the same kind of era as Amazing and Time Masters. Okay. Um, so yeah, there was a couple of those that I worked on. Um, I was only 17, so it was, you know, a couple of days a week, straight out of school. Um, so yeah, that, that, that kind of, that kind of made me want to get into the media more. What? were you doing there on those shows? Um, I was a production assistant so basically shit kicker so you basically do what the producer wants you to do okay get food look after the studio audience um, do time sheets do basically everything everything that they don't want to do. So like you said it gave you that thirst for working in media? Yeah exactly what confirmed because I'd always wanted to but that was my first job um, so that kind of confirmed to me that that's the, um, that's the direction that I wanted to go in what was the next progression point for you? Um, That was kind of only a year-long contract. So um, I was still living in Perth. And as we all know, the Perth media scene's not that large. I mean, there's still news and everything over there, but it's gradually shrinking. Um, So for probably the next year and a half, I kind of did odd jobs while I was trying to get more work in the media in Perth, um, which kind of didn't happen. So um, one of my friends um, suggested I go do a radio course. Um, I'd never really thought about doing radio all, of that, all that much. Um, but she did it and she got a job straight out of um, a six-month course. So um, I went and gave that a go um, and did the same thing that she did, got a job straight away after I completed that six-month course. And where was that course? Um, it was at the Academy of Radio in Perth.
0: Okay. And that's quite a well-known... Um...
1: Um, the Academy, uh, the, uh, what, uh, is it Whopper? It's not it's not affiliated with Whopper, it was a separate. Okay. It was a separate, um a separate what do you call it, unity, separate yeah. enterprise entity. entity that's yeah. the one. Yeah. Um so yeah, I don't think it exists anymore. I think it was going for about ten years. Um so I did that for six months and then got a job as a radio announcer in Caratha. Now, how far out of Perth is that for people that um is about a eighteen hour drive north or twenty hour drive north. So I was basically going from Sydney to um North Queensland. Mm. But it's very isolated up there. So once you're up there, you're up there. That's it. Like There's not really much going out and leaving that town. And what did they have you doing in that first job? Um, my first job was um, afternoon radio announcer. So basically from six months of radio school, they chuck you straight on. Yeah. So you basically haven't done any, any live radio before. So it's kind of interesting. How did you find that? Um, It was very daunting to start with. And do you have any tapes of that first Um, experience? There may be some around somewhere, but I don't think they'll be coming out today. (laughs) (laughs) I don't expect them to. So were you Mike Morrow back then or Michael Morrow? No, I was just Mike Morrow back then. There was no Michael there.
0: Because you're Michael at News Corp, aren't you? I know. It sounds very official.
1: Yeah, I know. I don't know why that happened. It just, I think when I... um, Filled in all my details. That's just what my what my signature became. So tell me
0: more about the Karathu experience. Obviously, for a guy from Perth who wants to get into the media and then mm. does his little six month course, and then all of a sudden, eighteen hours Thrust away, he, he's in the middle of the desert doing his best as a
1: as a radio announcer. It must have been like quite the experience. Well, it, it, I kind of felt you know back in those days that that's kind of what you had to do. You had to go do your time in the country like an electrician or something has to do their apprenticeship. So you've got to you've got to go somewhere and get your experience. So, you know, I thought I'd never left Perth before. I was still in the same state. Um, I had a few friends that had been up there and done the same thing in the past and moved on to bigger and better things. So, you know, I thought nothing's really happening in Perth. The only way to go is to Crathrum and get my experience and then, you know, try and come back to Perth or um, head to the eastern state, so you know, after a couple of weeks up there, you kind of got into the groove of how live radio works, and it it all it all ended up quite well in a situation like that,
0: the radio station would be very much part of the community. Is that how
1: you found it? yeah, it was it was um. Yeah, more more so than, you know, in the capital city or anything, you kind of were, you know, the town B-grade celebrities if you were on the radio there. Like, people were quite impressed that, you know, you were the person that was coming out of their car speakers. Um, so did you get a few free meals, a few free well, bits of yeah, clothing well, and the, all that kind of um, the radio station was right next door to the Caratha Tavern, so um, that was always convenient. They also um, advertised with us, so, yeah, they looked, they looked after us quite well. Um but yeah, no, it was look, it was it was good, and I'm glad I did it. I don't know if I could go back to living up somewhere like that again. Um, well, it's quite a
0: famous radio station in many ways because Brendan Jones from Jonesy and Amanda fame oh, yeah, worked yeah, at 2K yeah, Arthur yeah. and began his yeah, uh, radio weird. career there. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think he's probably the. I know mean, you've got. I can't think if there's anyone else you know that's going that well that's come out of Karatha. A lot of people kind of did their stint up there and then went back to Perth for a while and have gone on to do, you know, other things. Um, they didn't pursue much really further than WA after Karatha. But it must have been a great place for you to cut your teeth. Oh, look, it was. I mean, when I moved up there, it was very... Um, community base because Woodside, Woodside has their main base up in Karatha. Um, so when I was up there, they hadn't really done too much of an expansion, so the town was basically locals. So after a week or two, you got to meet a group of friends, then you could kind of fit in. And you know, for the two years up, I was up there, I had a really great time. Um, ended up managing the nightclub up there as well to get some extra money, which was interesting. There would have been a few interesting characters there, there was. Yeah, um, it was quite interesting, that nightclub. Um, but, you know, towards the end of my stay up there is when a lot of the locals started selling up because the mining um, companies came into town and were paying big bucks for the houses. So a lot of the locals moved out and a lot of the um, a lot of the fly-in, fly-out workers came up and it kind of changed the dynamic of the town. Um, so- that's when I kind of decided, you know, a year and a half, two years was enough in the desert. I was going to say, did you think at that point two years... I've done my time. I now need to move on. Exactly. Yeah, and that's what I did. I packed up my bags in Karafa. Um, went back to Perth for maybe um, two weeks. And then I was like, I'm going to Sydney. So I just packed up my bags and moved to Sydney with no job. With no job. With so no job. you just what, got on a plane or mm-hmm. did you
0: drive over or how did no, you No, I flew over. over. Okay.
1: I flew over with a suitcase. I told my mum I might not be coming back in 2 weeks because I booked a return flight and she said you're not going to be back in 2 weeks and 13 years later I'm still here. And so take me through the mindset of that. Why did you make that decision
0: that you thought Sydney's the place to go and I'm going to make it my
1: home or I'm going to make it my career? Well, I guess I guess Sydney is the main hub for media in Australia. Um, I already had a couple of friends that were living over here from Perth. Um, you know, I had a couple that were at NIDA. Um, not many that were in. No, no one in radio, I don't think, actually. Um, so I thought that, you know, rather than Melbourne where I don't really know anyone, um, I've got some friends over here. I could crash on someone's couch when I first got here, um, which makes it a lot easier as well when you're struggling. Radio announcer in on 24 grand a year. back in the day. That was 13 years ago. I don't know what that equates to now.
0: That must have been very welcoming for you, obviously, that you had people over here support that you could rely on to actually get yourself started. Now, how did that begin? Like, how
1: did the job process go then? It It was kind of difficult. I applied for so many jobs, you know, radio, big capital city radio stations over here won't generally take someone that's come from straight from somewhere like Caratha and whack them straight on air. Um, so I did a couple of random jobs when I got here. Like I worked in a call center for a bank for about two weeks. Um, and that's when I got offered a job at Today FM as a Black Thunder pilot. Now, we
0: spoke to Matt McDonald earlier on in this podcast series. Mm. He started his career as a Black Thunder driver. What did that experience give you? I guess it kind of taught
1: you how to get around Sydney first and foremost. Well, that, well, that's that's what I was about to say. I think the best thing about that job was is, you know, when you move to a like a new city or a new country, you have no idea what road goes where, what directions, what... Um, so that job, you know, I got lost every day for the first month. Um, but kind of after after you've done that, you, you become a walking street directory. Like you don't need one anymore. You kind of know which way. You know where the suburbs are. Um, so that that in a way was it was a good start to arriving in Sydney. Um, and then I guess it it was a foot in the door into radio.
0: Now, did you have plans to get back on air as an announcer originally? Or? Obviously, there's people here that a whole lot more people, as you said, the, the media scene in Perth's mm. a whole lot smaller. So over here you would have been faced with such yeah. a, a greater deal of competition in terms of people wanting to be on air and people yeah. that had sort of cut their teeth in the provincial areas uh, mm. like Newcastle and Wollongong mm-hmm. and so forth that were looking to head towards yeah. Sydney as well. Yeah. So was
1: that a difficult experience to sort of get your head around? Well, it was. You know, I gave... I. Gave our program director at the time, you know, my um my tapes from my cassettes if they were then um Showing my your age there, Mike. Yeah, I know my cassettes from Caratha, and you know, I I knew that they weren't, you know, up to scratch with what with, with what Sydney standards were, and you know, I knew that before I came over here, and I wasn't expecting to, you know, move into a announcer's role straight away or maybe never. Um, and it was it was a random meeting with. Um, Gil Taylor, who everybody knows. <laughs> One day at the radio station, um, I think someone in, in promotions had um, told him that I had been on air before and he was kind of looking for someone to fill in and record in the traffic and occasionally fill in when Sando was away, um, fill in his traffic report. So that's kind of how I moved into the newsroom. Which was kind of unexpected, but it's a blessing now. Obviously, there, w- there would have been
0: a huge difference from going from the promotions team into the newsroom. Mm-hmm. Was that shelf life driving the Black Thunders? You obviously didn't see oh, the, yeah, yeah. the the yep. future in
1: that, but you saw yep.
0: something with more potential
1: being. Oh, in exactly. The so i I stayed. I stayed doing promotions at the same time that I was doing um, shifts in the newsroom as well. But I kind of knew that um, you know, after a couple of weeks in the newsroom that that's kind of where I wanted to, which way I wanted to go to. Um, and luckily at the time we had Gil Taylor as a news director there, um, who basically just threw me into it and taught me what to do. And basically I was thrown in the deep end and yeah, go and do this, do your traffic. Um, and then they started letting me go out um, as on-road reporter as well. How did you find that experience? Because um,
0: when you sort of go out on the road with news crews, they're generally a whole
1: lot more serious than the FM oh, stations. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. It was, it was kind of difficult to, especially if you're going um, out on road, with your FM microphone and you're there with all the AMs and they're very very serious about you know all their stories. I mean, which we were a serious newsroom as well, but not so cutthroat, not so um, competitive as they were. Yeah, Because you're not like a talk radio station. No, so no. The
0: urgency there to file back a no, no, live exactly. cross is not there. It's, no, it's more so about the the presence and being yeah. out there with the microphone. And then you know you may have to file a, a yep. piece of audio, but there's no, there's not that same urgencies that the AMs have.
1: No. Um. So, you know, the first couple of weeks when you're out on the road with all these Sydney journos and the TV journos are there as well, it is it is quite scary. And especially coming from, you know, a radio announcer promotions background going into the world of news, like you kind of don't really know what you're doing.
0: And how did you adapt to that? How did you bring yourself up to speed? I guess you would have made a, uh, quite a few mistakes along the way before you yeah, yeah, the,
1: found your niche. Yeah, well, exactly. That would have been, you know, for the first couple of months I was out on the road, there was no... You know, no, there was reporting, but, you know, it would be heavily subbed by whoever's back in the newsroom. It would just be, you know, I'll be out there getting grabs. It was more of, to start with, more of just getting grabs and, you know, filing the grabs back, which, you know, you can't really make mistakes with because it's live audio there.
0: Well, oh, like I guess recorded, you've, got, you've, you've got to be across the story, though, yeah, first you, of all. So you've got to exactly. know what the most important grab yeah, is true.
1: To, to file yes. back to the newsroom. Um, yeah, that's true, and I I think being thrown in the deep end, you know, uh, with the guidance of Gill as well, you kind of just pick it up when you're there, and especially too with some of the journo's um, that were there at the time um, would be very helpful and see that you don't really know what you're doing, <laughs> um, and basically help you out, especially doing court reporting. So that was always the um that was always a difficult one because you. I was never trained in journalism law.
0: Going out to stories there where they're dealing with quite complex matters mm. and then you're basically there for the summary at the end of the day yeah. rather than attending the whole proceedings which yeah. can be quite tricky in mm. some instances because mm-hmm. you've pretty much got to pick up and work out what the story is on the run and then file back.
1: Yeah, and especially if you're sitting in court for the first couple of weeks or months that you know I would be sent to a court story it was quite difficult to understand the process of actually what's going on. And sometimes everyone would run out and file a story and I'd be sitting there going, I don't even know there's a story going on. Like it it was quite scary to begin with. One of the things that would have helped you
0: though is being in that newsroom during the breakfast shift where – Mm-hmm. If a journalist is reading the news, they're also generally the editor. So, yep. if a politician calls in or somebody on a, a certain issue, you mm-hmm. would quite often have to take that audio from that person. So, you'd have to be
1: across quite a number oh, yeah, of issues. Cool. Yeah, I think I think because what helped me as well because I have always had a fascination in news since I was you know five years old, six years old. Um, it didn't take me that long to pick up on those things it kind of all just fell into place, you know, after a certain amount of time. Um, and I guess with at Osterio, I was in that newsroom doing that same job for um, eight or nine years. Um, and I, I thank them for that, for you know, giving me the on the training that they gave me there um, to get me where I'm at now.
0: What would you say were one or two of the more memorable stories that you attended when you were doing that on the road um, reporter
1: um, style uh, gig? Uh, Probably the most, um, the worst one I attended was the Quakers Hill nursing home fire. And if you remember correctly, it was the NRA Christmas drinks the night before. Yeah, it was um, too. So <laughs> that was, that was quite an intense day. And, um, many of us out there, you know, hadn't had much sleep, but luckily I'd been at, with Osterio, um, at that time for seven, seven or eight years, I think it would have been by then. Mm. So, uh, you know, you'd, you'd like, you'd learn how to cope with things like that. Um, but yeah, that, that day was pretty intense, um, I think I got out there at 5 in the morning and we left at 6 in the afternoon or anything, which is um, quite a long day for a FM radio journalist. I know it's probably not for <laughs> AM journalists or TV journalists. I think
0: one of the things that you sort of wore as a, a badge of honour was getting on the TV or getting on the in the newspaper the next day with the, whether it be the Triple M microphone yep. or the Today FM microphone. Yep. And while people outside the industry might not even think about that kind of thing mm. it's a pretty i wouldn't say prestigious but it's a pretty it's something that you can you can sort of brag about about when you're you're yeah. chasing people down the street whether it be like ryan tandy or whether it'd be yeah. some other well-known court case and there's mike just charging <laughs> down the street with his sunglasses on <laughs> sticking a microphone in front of someone and you'd always try and like yeah. outdo the
1: 2GB or the 2UE two yeah. reporters. Well, that was, that was kind of a thing that when I first started um, in radio, you know, Gil Taylor was always like, you need to get the microphone in the shot. I mean, every radio station wanted their microphone in the yeah. shot. Um, so, you know, there was always, you know, it, it kind of got to the point where you kind of earned your spot, how long you'd been there for. Like you never wanted to put your microphone in front of 2GBs or 2UEs if you'd been there for... Six months, because mm. that's just that's not that's not how the rules work in microphone land. Did it take you a while to build up your brownie
0: points with those other reporters and get them on side? Because as you said, yeah, there's a bit of a, yeah. a disdain
1: for well, that's, for I, FM radio journalists. Well, that's the thing. Once once you get once you you know build up relationships with the other journalists from the other stations, everyone kind of works together. Whereas if a random just comes in and sticks the microphone up in front of someone else's, that that was trouble. But it was kind of like you said, you know, we were kind of had it built into our heads that that was one of the most important things of being on road was to getting your mic in the shot. It's all about station branding, right? It's about station branding. But you're right, though, now that uh, most of us that were back in those days were doing that, watch the TV now. Like, I don't even notice the mic the in, <laughs> in there. No. Um, so, yeah, what what you said is true. And I guess that's, you know, it's all part of station branding. And I guess... We just don't notice that anymore. <laughs> well, I guess we kind of, people outside the industry wouldn't
0: notice it, but people that do or people that are covering that yeah, story yeah, yeah. that had it drilled into their heads, that that's what they had to do. Oh, There's yeah. like a lot of pride associated with that.
1: Yeah, I used to sit at home watching the news and just to make sure that it was in there. And if, if it wasn't in there, I'd get pissed off. <laughs> Or if someone got in the way he wouldn 't be happy with them well, yeah, I mean, and that, that was the other thing you were like.
0: You were so proud of the fact that you were able to do it on each and every story, no matter how many mm. minders or how many people there somehow you 'd get it in there you 'd yeah. weave your way in there yeah. like um, i don 't know uh, and you would you would get it done and then if if you weren 't on shift or you 'd gone home and then somebody else had been sent from our station mm. to a particular story. And, and they didn't get it in there. They hid you oh, in yeah, there. You'd trouble. be so annoyed. <laughs> yeah, that's trouble.
1: Well, look, I was taught by the best. I was taught by Gil Taylor how to do micing. So, oh, Gil's still out there. He's still got it. He's still got the mic there. Well, see,
0: the thing about all of that also is that I used to think that I was relatively connected, even though I hadn't spent time on the road in in quite some time in in years, in fact. But you managed to build up this terrific network of contacts where you knew every Mm. TV reporter, Mm. newspaper journalist, radio journalist. Mm. Is
1: that something that you deliberately set out to do or is that Mike just being Mike? No, not at all. I I just think it's because we spent so much time with each other um, on a daily basis that you kind of – and because I was working for FM, there was never really a competitive – you know, angle for it. Like I wasn't trying to, I wasn't a 2UE trying to compete against a 2GB. So I was kind of just friends with everyone. And if someone wanted to borrow my audio, if they didn't get theirs, I'll just hand it across like no, no questions asked. So no, there was definitely no, you know, it it wasn't my aim to, you know, network with everyone. I mean, of course, networking is great, especially in the media industry. But yeah, there was no like plan to go and meet everyone so I could, you know, further my career. I spoke to Brian Sanders. Mm early in this podcast
0: series as well. It's one of the more enduring relationships from my memory mm-hmm. is sitting next to you every morning for about five or six years and you, as you said, having to record the traffic mm-hmm. from Sando, who at that stage was doing both Today FM and Triple M. So mm-hmm. he was fairly busy. He'd have to do reports every 15 minutes for both stations. Mm-hmm. But in between those times of recording... Mm -hmm. were some of the most entertaining and interesting conversations I think I've heard in my life.
1: Yes. Yeah, Sando is a very, very interesting and lovely man. Um, And we did have some interesting conversations about, well, we spoke to each other every morning on the phone for about nine years, um, probably 15 times a day perhaps I think it probably would have been so look I we would have gone through everything like (laughs) spoken about anything you can imagine about and you were sitting next to me so you would have heard yeah um but yeah I can't really put my finger on you know what the greatest conversation we ever had was um he told me that he learned a lot about gay life. Well I'm sure, to you. He, I'm sure I'm sure he would have. Um he, he was very interested in what happens in my world. That's another subject that we will bring up. <laughs> there are a lot of
0: gays in the media. Mm-hmm. Did people treat you any different when you first started or is it an industry that people are are welcoming because there is a number of people that are of that persuasion within the industry how does it work for um, a, a gay man in, a, in an industry which is so cutthroat like the, the media?:
1: No I, I don't think there's any um, I've been treated any differently in even my first job in Karatha. actually it wasn't in the closet then so that doesn't really matter um, but for, for yeah for radio and my TV and the job I'm in now um, I don't think it's any harder. There's so many gay people that work in the media that I don't. I just don't think that there's really any issues. I'm sure there's still some people that have issues in the media with it. Yeah. Um, I guess most of them don't say anything about it. Um, but no, I've never, never come across anything. You think and, people are a little bit more respectful
0: because acceptance is a whole lot more widespread these well, days. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Um, yeah. I, and so it should be. Yeah and i think I think the media is one of those one of those workplaces industries that um, is more accepting than others. Um, maybe it is because there's so many gay people that work in the media, or maybe people that work in the media are generally more accepting kind of people and are more open minded and you know people that work in the media are generally more artistic and more. More, you know, rounded open and- and more rounded and more <laughs> blowing smoke up everyone's asses. <laughs> <it>. um, <laughs> but yeah, but I guess people, and then what's the word extroverted, you know, more, I don't know. It's not like working with a big group of carpenters that are in, you know, in the building at the same time, not saying that carpenters are um, homophobic or anything but yeah it's just a, it just seems to me through my 13 or so years of working in media that it's it's not a it's not an issue and
0: working with somebody like jeff field who has managed mm-hmm. to i guess raise the profile and awareness of marriage equality and mm-hmm. things like that is jeff somebody that
1: you admire jeff's always been a um a big, um, supporter of mine from the start, from when I first started in the newsroom, um, reporting Sando's traffic reports in. Jeff's always been very supportive. Um, and yeah, through those, through those years, me and Jeff became, um, great friends and, you know, we still catch up outside of work now. Um, but yeah, Jeff, Jeff was one of it, one of, one of the, um, biggest influences, I think on, you know, my time of progressing through that newsroom at Today FM. And what did he teach you? Um, I, I guess Jeff taught me how to, you know, just write in a style that, you know, wasn't wasn't too formal, wasn't, you know, Jeff's very laid back. He's very, you know, not really formal when he reads his news. He's no. very, very chilled out. And he just, he just taught me to, you know, relax and not, he basically taught me to be myself. How important is that for somebody in the media
0: to have that? Because there's a lot of people there, out there that, Think that they have to put on some kind of persona to get ahead. It's not necessarily no, the, the I case. Mean,
1: I mean, you know, maybe back in the day, you know, there was always the, you know, the typical radio boy. There was a typical, there was a stereotype for people that worked in media. Um, you know, the sports journalists always used to have to be, you know, rough and you know, speak with their speak with their sport accent or whatever. Whereas I think now. Um, it's it's not really like that anymore to a certain extent it is but i mean if you listen to the the way that radio announcers used to you know present their shows 15 years ago to how they present it now it sounds totally different
0: well i think there's about a decade and a half worth of female tv journalists all want to sound like oh, Yvonne event. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and it, I, it, think, it, it, I think I think she kind of I don't know laid the platform for all of these people to try and impersonate her. When it was yeah. just like, well, actually get that out of your system and just mm. be you.
1: Well, that's it. Yeah, I think that that's 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 a big thing I think in the media now where, you know, people are trying to drop those kind of you know stereotypes of how they should be. It all came
0: to an end for you at Austereo after that long period of time. Mm-hmm. Was it a case of you just wanting a change and getting out of the, the radio environment and
1: yeah. trying to test yourself in another medium? Yeah, I think, I think I'd, I'd been there for about nine years um, and I, kind of, I, I was really happy working there, but I think that it got to a point where I was feeling too comfortable um, and wondering where I can go from now. Um and then yeah there was a change of management in there there was a change there was a change of management the radio station and it kind of didn't feel like it did for the previous eight years of it being a very close knit kind of family that had been there because I started in um at the radio station when we were in Bondi Junction um and then we all moved to World Square so it was it was quite a tight knit group of of people when management changed. You know, all everything still kept flowing but there was still a noticeable change in, you know, in the general feeling around the business. And I think also
0: what people have got to appreciate is that for somebody like yourself and I was in the same boat, we'd have to get up at ridiculous hours, which you still do, I think, mind yeah, you. I'm but yeah. you had a, a bit of a break there in between but getting up at those hours for seven or eight years really mm. does – Throw your body clock out of whack, mm. and you you get tired and you get mm-hmm. grumpy because you're not working normal hours. You're getting up not necessarily early. Mm. You're getting up in the middle of the night,
1: yeah, to come to work. My um my hours at the radio station weren't too bad because I generally wasn't starting till five thirty or six o'clock. Um, know I live close to the radio station. I mean, it's still early. Um, but yeah, the, the, hours did throw me out. Um, but I think your body clock kind of just adjusts to, to doing that. Now, were you a um, napper during the day? Um, look, I, t- there was one point at the radio station where I was doing split shifts. I was doing five in the morning till nine and yeah. then going home, then starting again at four and working till seven. I was a daytime sleeper then. Yeah. Um, I think that that's when I was reading the traffic reports. I don't know where Sando was, maybe long service leave, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, oh no, sorry, I was recording Sando in the morning and then I was reading in the afternoon, yeah. Um, so that probably lasted for maybe a year and a half, I think, of those split shifts. But I was kind of like, I just could walk to work, walk to work, and walk home, so it wasn't like it was a, a massive issue for me.
0: But in that situation, it feels like, well, I've never done a split shift, but mm. I would imagine your day of work. It's never over. Like you would think, you'd, you'd, oh, yeah. you would leave, and yeah. then you'd, you'd think, "Oh God, I've got to go back to work." Yeah,
1: it was kind of. You would sit at home going, "Well, I can't really relax. So I've got to go to work again in, in whatever time that was." But you know, I just le- learned to deal with it. And you know, that only lasted for a year and a half, and then I went to, um, back to normal hours or not normal hours, but you know, five till one or whatever it was. But I think the worst hours I've done were when I went to Channel Seven after the radio station. When I moved over there to be a um, producer in the newsroom, um, when would sometimes have to do produce the sunrise um, news. It was a rotation roster, so it wasn't too bad. Like it wasn't you weren't starting those hours all the time, but there were midnight starts and two AM starts.
0: Tell me about moving to TV. What was your experience, and what was the the main differences or issues that you found coming from? such a strong radio background. Obviously, yeah. you didn't work in AM radio, but you had worked in FM radio mm-hmm. for quite some time, almost a decade. So moving into TV land, what was it that the oh. most difficult
1: part to adjust to? Look, it wasn't it wasn't all that different. I mean, I mean when you get in there, you know, it's totally new systems. Um, you've got to get your head around that. It's not radio anymore. Um, so you're basically, you're having to write to pictures. So it's kind of reversing it all around so instead of just sitting there and writing a story you've got to actually see the vision and see the pictures before you can actually write it so that that was the that was the biggest challenge i think was learning how to do that and not just writing a straight script because if you write a straight script and then put pictures on the top of it that's, people are going to sit there and look at it and go well it doesn't really fit yeah, and you're also telling the story that the pictures are telling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're not just telling a story and then adding pictures because that, that, that way it's not going to work. Um, but I was lucky enough when I moved into the Seven newsroom in Sydney um, to have some really good friends that were already there. Um, so that was kind of comforting. And they, um, the executive producer um, of news, Jeff Dunn, has been a friend of mine for ages, so he was very helpful. Um, Georgina Maccarrow, she also um, came from radio to TV. Um and Simon Robson, there's a, there's heaps of them in there. Um, so that was a, that was a really nice to, you know, have them there when I f- was first starting. So once again, like I said, it, it was just kind of a quick learning curve. Adjusting to those really difficult hours of midnight starts must have been a bit of yeah.
0: a, a yeah. bit of a kick in the
1: gut. Especially when you, um, are on a two a.m. start, a weekend sunrise shift, when you live in the middle of Kings Cross and trying to get into. Martin Place this at 1:30 this before is pre-lockout, pre-lockout when you live on Bayswater Road and there's thirty thousand people trying to get a cab at the same time. Um so that was probably more of a challenge getting a taxi than actually getting up. Um but you know, it's it was it's all part of the experience and um yeah, i I'm really glad that I did make that move from radio into T V. Otherwise, you know, I could still be sitting there in World Square now doing the same thing I'd been doing for twelve years before. I guess that's also a really valid point in that you've managed to pick up a whole lot of new skills that you didn't oh, exactly. have. Exactly, yeah. Um, you know, when I started at the radio station as a Black Thunder driver, I, you know, didn't have – I, I was interested in the news but I didn't really have any new skills. So, you know, radio taught me that nine years there like ridiculous amounts of experience and – um, and things like that. And then moving to TV, that's added to my experiences and, you know, everything else. Um, and like you said, it's, it's a totally different style of news to radio. Um, so yeah, I, I was in the seven newsroom for about a year. Um, and then I got off some work up, upstairs at sunrise. Um, As a segment producer, which was a totally different realm of things again because it wasn't really a news, um, so a segment producer, basically we do segments on the show for Sunrise. Most of them are news-based, but some aren't. Um, And instead of having like a you know 45-second to two-minute story to do, we'd have a window of four minutes and we'd have to basically come up with an idea and put that together get all the talent, write the scripts, do get the pictures. So it was quite intense. That was, again, another really quick learning curve that you had to had to fall into. What were the key
0: things that you took out of that when going through that the first time, like in terms of just setting all that stuff up? Because like you say, while it's four minutes on the TV, uh, it can be upwards of like one or two weeks of solid work that's gone into putting
1: a segment like that together. Generally, we would have to put a segment or two segments together in one day. Like there was no, I mean, some, sure you'd work on segments if you had like a, a specialized segment that you're doing, yeah. Um, and you had a story idea, you know, they'd give you as much time as you needed to work on them. Um, but you know, live television, live television, they've got to have all those segments done by the day before. So you really need to be on deadline. You need to, you need to have that stuff done. Otherwise, it's not going to go. It's not going to happen.
0: So comparing that to doing your court stories and mm. running out there and recording the traffic. Mm. I'd imagine being in TV, live TV, mm. where things can go wrong mm. must have been an increase on the stress levels.
1: Yeah, I think, I think TV stress levels are more than in radio, um, I guess because it's visual as well as not just hearing. But yeah, definitely definitely TV producing, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot more. I feel there's a lot more pressure. And how did you cope with that pressure? Um, I, I think I was fine. Um, once again, I think it's also the people that you're surrounded with. Um, the people in the seven newsroom and everyone at sunrise. Um, everyone works really well together and works as a team. And, you know, if you got something wrong or you're stressed about something, just someone was there to talk to. Um, the executive producers, um, of both the news and of sunrise were really helpful. Um, so yeah, it was just a, it was a really supportive environment to work in.
0: Did you? have any favourite segments that you've put together that you can remember thinking, um, I've actually pitched this idea, I've organised the talent, I've written the scripts, and it's gone off perfectly and the hosts have, have been complimentary with um, their review of how things went. Um, because like you say, I mean, you're doing churning out two of them a day,
1: every day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I found this weird – not weird, shouldn't say weird. I found this like whiz kid that um, – was a world record holder in rubik's cubes um he was like 14 he just won the world championships in vegas um so i found out about that and i hunted him down and i he was based in melbourne so i pitched the story and i like yeah so we flew him up from melbourne and his family up there um up to sydney and we got him into the into the studio and we kind of got other kids in there as well we had all the hosts playing with the games as well um, so they, they kind of liked more interactive kind of segments rather than just, you know, a package where um, they're talking through to a package, come back, even just someone that sits in the studio for an interview. You know, sometimes that's not very exciting, whereas you've got, if you've got props, if you've got kids, if you've got people, if you, an interactive segment always went off rather than just a, a plain, straightforward segment. And seeing that come off and and being well-received must have been – very rewarding for you oh yeah of course it is um as a segment producer generally you're sitting at home when your segment goes segment goes to air um so there's also, there's always that fear before it goes before it goes to air that you know something's wrong or you haven't done something wrong or you spelt someone's name wrong on the um on the supers that run across the bottom of the screen or you know there's always that fear but so so once the segment's finished and you can see it's gone well then it's a great feeling. Tell me about that particular aspect, Will, because we all have fear that we've made
0: a mistake or mm. because you're in such a high-pressure environment, sometimes things don't go well and then yep. because you're so hyped up and then yep.
1: if it falls to shit, it can really fall to shit. Oh, yeah, and, and, and also now with social media too, if it falls to shit, it falls to shit even more because someone's going to see it and then it's going to be an ongoing disaster zone. <laughs> like watching a train crash. Like, it's just, uh, yeah. And
0: then you knowing
1: you're the one responsible And you know you're the one. It. Yeah. You just, nobody, nobody needs that. But you know, it's going to happen from time to time. Everyone's oh. human. Everyone makes mistakes. So, you know, luckily for me, nothing like that happened when I was at Sunrise i that I can remember. I don't think. <laughs> Why can you remember <laughs> No, I can't remember. <laughs> no, but I, I, what, I, don't, I don't think I
0: did. What I do remember is in your current role, Yes. you've made a few appearances on Media Watch. Not, oh, your, yes. not your face. Yeah. Or yeah. You've yeah. made been, you've yeah. made appearances on Media Watch before when you were doing your court chasing oh, yeah. and you were yes. outside yeah. Yeah. many times. Yeah. But some of your, how shall we say, more interesting stories yes. have made it
1: to Media Watch. Yeah. The stories that have been on Media Watch that I have covered before um, are generally uh, – they're a media watch story that you would probably want to have on media watch. It's not like you've um, you know you've done something wrong with copyright or you've defamed anyone. It's they're generally just stories um, that media watch have picked up on because they're you know sensationalised or they're just stupid, like giant crabs. You know, beards have more <laughs> shit in them than a the toilet. They're stories that people online want to read, not necessarily for TV, not necessarily for radio, but they're good visual stories that, um, the digital world wants to read clearly when you, when you see how much, um, you know, what the, what the, um, click rate is. Um, and I think, you know, that's one of the things that media watch are kind of pointing out with those stories is that, you know, is this what the world's coming to? And, you know, uh, maybe it is. Maybe maybe that's what people want to read these days. Is there a real art to that, to getting a story and
0: producing it, aligning it with some pictures mm. that you know is going to go viral or you know are that t- it's- Are we
1: talking digital?
0: Yeah, we're talking digital. Like in terms of getting those elements together, you must know when you're putting together yeah. a story that you think, this is just going to go postal.
1: Um to begin with when I started there, because then again, from the transition, we're talking about um, News Corp now. Yeah. 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 So from Seven to News Corp, that was also a change for me because I'd never worked in print or digital. So that was another learning curve again. Um, So when I first started, I kind of didn't really know, you know, what pictures are going to work and what stories are going to work. But I've been there now for nearly two and a half years, I think. Um, And I can generally tell now what story going to work and what aren't. Can you predict, like, the
0: magnitude of it or you just know that – Usually – Because essentially what we're talking about, we're talking about the clickbait stories that, yep. oh, Kim Kardashian's underpants have fallen off. Yeah. Bang, you yep. know. They're, yep. they're, yeah
1: Generally, um, we'll have a production meeting at 7 o'clock in the morning after I've done my um, news scrounge um, around, well, you know, tabloids and whatever and I'll go through social media accounts and whatever to try and find um, – you know, what's trending and, you know, I get sent pictures from agencies as well. Um, So generally at this seven o'clock meeting, we'll sit down and we'll decide what we're going to, you know, on my list, what's going to happen. But generally, um, if there's a story that's going to go viral, I'll know at that seven o'clock meeting if it's going to go. I mean, I have been wrong before. It's either going to go really well or it's going to crash.
0: And then what's the, the art then to finding another story? that? Because obviously that's the idea behind all mm. of these crazy stories. Yeah. Uh, you want one that goes out of the box mm-hmm. that other news agencies agencies around the world mm-hmm. are picking up in their coverage, like say, yeah, exactly. like a CNN or a BBC yeah. or or whatever saying, yeah. you know, look at this crazy story from Australia or look at this story that you may have found from mm. overseas that then gives notoriety to News Corp as the yeah, source. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, well, it's, like I said before, it's very – it's still kind of unknown territory like you can't like you if you if you go through and have a look at what stories trended um this week and what trended last week like they're all totally different like it's week from week month to month um you know it's 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 still a big you know it's it's a trial and error kind of a thing with digital of you know what kind of stories we're going to run when we're going to run them where we're going to run them um, well, who would have known that story from a,
0: a couple of weeks ago mm. with that lady in the car with the Chewbacca mask? Oh, exactly. <laughs> Where's that going to come from? And, like, just the, by virtue of the fact uh, yep. like, that the premise of the story wasn't that exciting, she bought no. it, she bought it, but the fact that she had this outrageous laugh <laughs> yeah.
1: made the story. Exactly. And you know what? That That could have quite easily slipped to nowhere. It's because some clever person saw that and went, oh, that's actually quite funny. That might, you know that might actually go viral. Um, I reckon a lot of people, not a lot, but, you know, some editors would have had that thrown on their desk at their meetings in the morning and they would have said, no, let's not do it. It's stupid. But it's, you just don't know. Like you, you don't know what people are going to click on. Well, the other thing, it's, it's clicking on is one aspect
0: of it. Yeah. But in this day and age of of Twitter and Facebook and mm. the ability to share video and mm. share pictures, that is the the part of the – the I guess the ingredient that sends it a, a, what seems like an innocuous story to the next level.
1: Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like most of um, most of our story, not most of our stories, but um, the stories that we do. Um, produce and if a masthead picks it up, masthead being like the Daily Mail, Korea Mail, Herald Sun, um, they've all got Facebook pages. So we get a lot of traffic from that as well. Sometimes we might get more traffic from social media than the actual, um, actual website. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, you know, you just, you can never tell like we, there's stories, you know, about people making pancakes that we, you know, will get hundreds of thousands of clicks, which you would never think you'd get of hundred thousands of clicks. And then you do a story on, you know, Kim Kardashian's done something in it. You might think that's going to get hundreds of thousands of clicks and it's going to get 400. It's just a, it's just a very, a, a very unknown. What's the word? Quantity. Qu- unknown. Um, element. element element, this is what happens when I've been awake since 4.30, um, a very unknown, it's uncharted waters basically. Everyone's still just trying to work, figure out the best way to do it and especially trying to also figure out, you know, people, people aren't really buying papers that much anymore. People are sitting on the trains with their mobile phones and their iPads. So, you know, you've got to think about what people want to read on the train because what they're going to read on the train on their iPads and phones is going to be totally different to what they're going to read in paper. Like people on the train on their way to work probably don't want to read about war and you know serious crime and stuff like they would have been forced to read in the paper. They will kind of kind of want to read light-hearted kind of entertainment stuff on the way to work and on the way home from work. So, yeah, it's still it's everything's still. In the process of, you know, trying to pan out which is the best way to do it and what stories to create and what stories to put on the tablets and what stories to put in the paper. So it's a very um, interesting and exciting time. Looking at the analytics mm. would be a key part of your oh, job exactly. as well. Yeah. Um, so you keep your eye across the um, analytics every day and you can, you can see what people are, you can see what people are generally wanting to read. And, you know, sometimes they are quite interesting. Your job would be a fun job because mm. it's going to be different every day. You don't know what's going to come across your no. desk at any given time. No, no. Um, that's the good thing about being a digital content producer because you kind of get in in the morning and, you know, one morning you might go and you might have a terrorist attack and no idea about that the night before. The next day, well, of course, the terrorist attack is going to stay around for a couple of weeks. Um, But it's just, I mean, I might go to work in the morning and be writing a story about Kim Kardashian and then, you know, there's a tsunami somewhere. Like it's, you just, you don't know. Um, So it does keep you on your feet and you've kind of, you've got to be, you've got to make sure you're also across all kinds of media as well and all kinds of stories because, you know, if you just get thrown a political story to do and you're not across what's happened in the last couple of weeks or whatever. You get caught out. You get caught out. And, you know, with even with the entertainment stories and stuff as well, like if you don't know who all the big celebrities are and, you know, your editor says go and do a story on, you know, Black China and you're like, "Who and then who is Black yeah, China? <laughs> I think she's Rob Kardashian's girlfriend oh okay. I think right um so yeah you've got it it's one of those industries, I guess it's the same you know with t v and radio as well um unless you're unless you're doing you know specified rounds um You've kind of got to be on top of everything, otherwise it's especially in these this the media these days. With you know, it's shrinking. They're expecting everyone to know everything. Your ability to adapt is obviously
0: something that you look on upon as a great skill, because as you've said, you started off as an announcer in radio, then moved across mm. here to work in Black Thunders and then worked your way into the newsroom. Then you went and worked yeah. in TV and mm. now you're with News Corp working mm. on the digital side of things. So yeah. having that flexibility and mm. be able to transition between the mediums yeah. is something that you've got in your, in your kit bag.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd hope so anyway. Um, um, and I feel really lucky to have had those opportunities to – You know, crossover and work in, you know, the three different, um, three different media areas as well. And, you know, I think having TV, radio and digital print, um, is, is something that people in the future are going to look favorably upon, especially digital. Um, digital, I think, you know, I didn't necessarily want to leave TV, but, um, this opportunity was too good to pass up and, you know, everything's going digital and I didn't have digital experience and, you know, I'd be stupid if I didn't take that on. Yeah. I mean, I look at this experience.
0: This is digital. So yeah, well, exactly. it's where the world's have, sort of heading head real. on demand. Um, what people want to consume when they want to consume
1: yeah. it is the path where every medium yeah. looks as if they're heading. Yep. Um, yeah. I know with radio and stuff, you're kind of forced to listen. Radio is not very interactive. I mean, they've got the social media pages and stuff where you can kind of interact but or you can call them up and stuff. But it's kind of, you know, you can't really choose. Whereas in digital, you can – I think that's why it's going so well because you don't have to read that if you don't want to. You don't have to look at that if you don't want to. And you can switch to that if you want to switch to that. Like it's, it's yeah. very – It basically lets you select what you want to do. Yeah, very tailored to the individual. Yeah, whereas other forms of media, it's kind of like this is what we've got and this is what you're getting and if you don't like it, don't watch it.
0: There'll still be a place for traditional media, but as we've seen, audiences
1: are becoming more and more fragmented. Mm. Yeah, I think – I mean, clearly by, um, you know, what I can see that people are actually reading um, on our digital platforms – is something that I didn't think people would be reading. Um, the top stories that people are reading on our websites would have never thought that when I was working in TV and radio, that that's what people are reading. Um, so it's very, very interesting to see the way that, you know, what people want is changing. And I, I, I think that that's mostly changing due to social media and to... And to digital because you've got access to so much more stuff than you had before. Um, fifteen or ten, fifteen years ago. You know, the only way you probably get your news is to come home and sit on the couch at six o'clock and that's that's what you get. We'll wrap things up in a sec, but before we go, I'd just like to get some
0: advice from you for anyone that's looking to break into the media industry, given the fact that you've had so much experience Mm -hmm. across a number of different mediums and platforms.
1: Yeah. I think that, I think the best thing, um, advice I could give is to not close off any options. Um, if you're wanting to do radio now, um, don't, don't shut out TV and don't shut out print or digital. Um, you know, I, I wanted to work in TV and then ended up in radio, then back in TV, then in digital. Um, I, I think just go with go with what your gut feeling is to start with, um, but don't close any doors, don't don't shut any other um, industry out, and also um, get some digital experience because that's where it's going. Mike Morrow, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Ralph. There he
0: is, Mike Morrow from News Corp. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Mike, please send him a tweet. He's at Mike Morrow nineteen seventy nine. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, leave a rating or a view. That way, more people will learn about the show. We haven't had a rating for a while, so please get to it. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast.
1: Media Mates Podcast.